Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Fran Moore, Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy at UC Davis. Along with several co-authors, Fran is out with a fascinating new analysis that expands the way we model the future of the climate system. I'll ask Fran and her team about how they built in aspects of human behavior, political decision-making, and technological progress into their climate modeling tools, and how those complex systems can interact with each other to speed up or slow down our efforts to limit climate change. Stay with us. Okay, Fran Moore from UC Davis, welcome back to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. Yeah, it is absolutely our pleasure. And of course, you've been on the show before, but it was more than two years ago, which is kind of amazing. We've been doing the show for that long. But can you remind us how you got interested in energy or environmental issues like as a kid or as an adult? Or how did you like end up working in this field? Yeah, I think, I mean, mostly for me, it really came kind of through college when I, I my, my undergrad was in um, a system science, kind of um, a science and, and geology, and I kind of studied the paleoclimate system. Um, and from there, I, you know, kind of had this trajectory of, of kind of, I moved to DC. And if you have a degree in, in geology and paleoclimate in DC, your comparative advantage, it was definitely working on kind of modern climate change and climate policy. And so that's where I kind of started getting more into, into that area. And it's just kind of snowballed from there and working on climate change is such a, is such a fascinating um, place to work um, an issue to work on because it really bridges across, you know, the whole of the earth system, as well as pretty much everything about our social kind of political and economic world as well. And so it's just a, I find it a kind of unendingly fascinating um, topic to work on, but also kind of obviously with real societal uh, import at the same time. Yeah. And we were just talking about this, I mean, before we started taping uh, about your new paper that we're going to talk about today on the show. And it's such a fascinating example of the ways in which earth sciences and economics and other social sciences can start to be rolled into a single framework, uh, which is exactly uh, what you and your co-authors start to do with this paper. It's out in Nature. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. And the paper title is Determinants of Emissions Pathways in the Coupled Climate Social System. So uh, let's start with some kind of high-level background. Uh, can you help us understand how most existing models estimate future uh, greenhouse gas emissions pathways and how this new analysis kind of adds new dimensions to those uh, pre-existing types of modeling efforts. Yeah, so the the motivation for this work was kind of this, this observation that if you look out to, say, 2100, which is now actually not that far away, <laughs> um, and you look at like what what the the variance in in kind of possible climate futures that we that we might be in uh in that 2100 uh world then you know the question of what what happens to emissions uh between now and then is really key right and that in turn is a question of well you know what do nations and what does the world as a whole kind of choose to 
do? How ambitious are they going to be uh, in efforts to to combat climate change? And and yet, and so this is a really key uncertainty. It's really kind of driving the climate system, right? So if you're interested in understanding climate change, you really have to understand policy, right? And this this question of like, where does this ambition come from? As well as, you know, obviously also the evolution of say the, um, the energy system as well and the energy technologies that kind of uh, ultimately going to kind of translate that policy into emissions changes. And what current modeling strategies do is they, they kind of treat that uncertainty as, as entirely exogenous to the model. So, um, and by exogenous, I mean kind of external to, to the modeling environment. Um, and so kind of input by the researchers. And so in the climate um, modeling space, what that means is that, you know, when you run a big climate model, what you do is you kind of take a pathway, some pathway of uh, possible emissions, and maybe you run your climate model with several different possible pathways of emissions, and these are kind of now standardized across climate models, and they're called the SFP-RCP kind of combinations. It's like an acronym is not super important what it stands for, but essentially these are kind of possible future worlds uh, of, of socioeconomic uh, development as well as uh, emissions. But then in the energy modeling space, you see a similar thing where um, these the, the kind of alternative policies enter into these models of the energy system as constraints, right? And so what um, what these types of models will often do is they will say, okay, well, show me what the least cost energy mix pathway looks like in order to limit uh, global temperature change to say under two degrees or to limit uh, cumulative CO2 emissions to some constraint. And what that means, if, if, if those emissions are external to the model, then you're, you're not able to really say anything about um, kind of probabilities over those different emission scenarios. Um, and that's what we've seen is that, you know, what, what happens is that these alternatives get presented as purely alternatives without any assessment of, of the likelihood of these different outcomes. And so and so we're approaching this the the question that we're trying to answer in this in this um paper is this question of kind of where does policy come from right and if we understand you know where this policy comes from then we can start to bound the space of possible emissions trajectories that are gonna gonna kind of shape uh climate change over the 21st century yeah that's such a nice way of putting it where does policy come from and so now i'm gonna start to ask you about how you derive that estimate of where policy comes from so i i, I imagine our listeners are imagining all of the things that are difficult to quantify about where policy comes from, and they're curious about how you did quantify those things. So can you talk a little bit about how you incorporated, you know, I know we don't have time to talk about all of them, but can you talk about maybe a couple of the social and political dynamics that you incorporated into the models and like what the challenges were with incorporating them? Yes. Uh, so this is a highly ambitious, I would say, is maybe the polite way of putting it <clears throat> in terms of the uh, what we're trying to do here. Um, and the way we approached this was kind of coming at it was kind of twofold. And so one was recognizing that that feedback loops are if we're if you're looking at the long-term dynamics of a system um feedbacks can be really important in determining that and you know feed particularly feedback loops that are that are connected together um can produce you know highly very very kind of 
quick changes or it can um, can lead to kind of sudden and, and unexpected changes in the system and kind of multiple like possible stable um, kind of states of the system. And so we, we kind of initially approached this kind of looking within relevant literatures for evidence of uh, literature and evidentiary support for different types of feedbacks across kind of the, the systems that are relevant here. And so that means looking um, across, like, there's a lot of literatures involved here. So we, we've got a lot on, on psychology and social psychology. Um, there's a lot of, um, we're looking a lot at political science, too, because this question of kind of what do nation states do um, to... Uh, to, to combat climate change is really important. Um, we're looking at there's kind of some legal feedbacks in there and then also in the energy system as well. And so we, we you kind of, we, we identify these feedbacks and then we, we essentially like put them together in what is actually, even though it's, it's kind of rich in ideas, I think it's like um, very simple in terms of the, the actual equations that, that, that we're putting in. But because we have these connected feedback loops, it can give rise to quite, quite complex behavior. That's great. Um, so let's take some of those concepts that you've just described and maybe see if we can put a little bit more meat on them. Can you give us an example or two of how, like within the modeling framework that you've developed with your co-authors, how a change in one system could lead to a rapid change or a so-called tipping point in a different system in the model? Yeah, so we have, so one of the interesting examples we look at in the paper and we kind of systematically explore uh, kind of using the model um, is this question of, of the role of individual behavior change. Um, and so this is kind of, you know, debated. There's an awful lot of, of um, like psychology literature is one of them, you know, that has looked at what kind of motivates people to take, say, pro-environmental behavior. So what, what motivates people to make changes um, in, their, in their personal life in ways that, say, reduce their environmental footprint. But, you know, this has come under the criticism, and I think maybe some economists in particular a little skeptical of, of this, this framing of the problem or, or, or this emphasis on, on individual action, kind of recognizing that what we're looking at here is really a collective problem and that, you know, a lot of about how and why we use energy and, and use fossil fuels is really outside of the control of uh, any one individual and that, you know, this needs to be solved at the collective level. And so, the you know, what we explore in this model, though, is potential feedbacks. And so, in particular, there are two uh, relevant feedbacks. So, people tend to, there's a kind of social conformity feedback where people tend to uh, want to be similar to others in their social network, right? And what that means is that depending on the strength of that effect, you can get kind of um, very sudden and kind of rapid changes in things like uh, behavior or opinion um, as norms kind of change and then spread through a population. The other really important feedback we look at is what what's called a credibility enhancing display feedback sometimes. Um, uh, oh, that's what we call it in the model. And this is the idea that if you undertake, say, costly personal behavior change um, in ways that are, say, consistent with your underlying values and ways in which are consistent with how you think or how you are advocating that society as a collective should change, um, then that actually changes your credibility as an advocate for those collective changes. Um, and so this is, so what this then does, so even though the effect of you say, you know, 
so for me, I'm trying to eat less meat, right, in order to reduce my climate footprint. Um, you know, the effect of that on emissions is small, even if the effect that, you know, everyone did that, you know, it would still be relatively small. Um, but if I am able to articulate to others about, you know, the values that lead me to do that and why I think it's important and how I think, you know, we should we should act collectively to reflect those values, um, that can lead, you know, the fact that I'm making these changes can, can make me a more effective advocate for those and can make me more persuasive so that that is a feedback from that behavior change back to public opinion right and if you can you, if you can trigger that 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 shift in public opinion right then that mobilizes action at the collective level uh, and that's what's really important in driving down emissions um, and so this kind of resolves this this tension I think a little bit where you see you know people people trying to say well behavior change you know is, is important and some people say no that's just like you know that's like greenwashing or it's it's like you know this is not um, how we're going to go about reducing emissions. And I think both of those can be true, right? It, it can be important, right? But it's not necessarily important just because of the actual reduction in emissions. It's important more because of uh, how it persuades other people. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we actually did an episode on the show maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago with Shazina Tari, who's a professor who studies this, like the way that um, climate scientists are perceived when they are viewed as, let's say, flying a lot versus riding their bike a lot or something like that. And so it's it's such a fascinating topic. Is another way to think about this like your idea going viral, right? So if you you know stop eating meat, Fran, and all the students in your class and all the people around you in Davis, they see you doing that and they are inspired to not only stop their meat eating, but take other actions as well that are pro-environmental. Is that kind of a suitable analogy? Well, the important thing is it's not just the spread of the behavior change, but it's actually the change in public opinion that leads to then that collective uh, emissions reduction. Because even if people were to change a lot of their behavior, right, the decisions about, say, you know, how we produce electricity, uh, how we design our cities, uh, how we, you know, all, all, these are not things that individuals can change by themselves, right? And so we need to, you need to have some some process of that aggregating through the political system. Um, but because you have this feedback, those two things are not unconnected to each other. Um, and so there are states of the model, although we find we, we kind of show that that it's possible to have um, states of the model where, you know, this, this willingness of climate policy supporters to undertake costly personal behavior change can be really decisive in triggering a cascade of feedbacks that lead to a tipping point. Um, but it's not necessarily common. <laughs> so I don't want to kind of overemphasize um, that. But that's just one example of, of uh, kind of these feedbacks in the model. Another, another interesting feedback is um, that, that listeners might be quite familiar with because it shows up uh, a lot in, in economics literature is um, this, this learning by doing feedback in the, the energy sector, right? And so, so we, have, we have this representation where you have this, um, this feedback where early energy technologies are very expensive, right? But you tend, if, you, if you can kind of like push that early installation, right? People learn how to, to reduce costs, how to get more efficient at doing the installation, supply chains improve, right? And, and that cost comes down over time. Um, and, and so that leads to more installations, which leads to lower costs, which leads to more installations and so on. Uh, and so that's another example of a tipping point in a really different system, but that's clearly kind of connected uh, in, in this, this like kind of overall system. Yeah. That's a great example. And right, solar solar PV and wind technologies come to mind there and, and maybe batteries too uh, in the years ahead. And now, 
a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's me, Daniel Ramey again. That's right, Resources Radio doesn't have any sponsors. We depend on listeners like you to make our show possible. If you're enjoying today's episode, please consider making a donation to RFF. Visit rff.org support to donate online and find out other ways to contribute. Thanks. So let's move down from kind of talking about the model itself and the ways that you construct and parameterize the model to some of the main results. And again, as always on the show, we're skipping over lots of great detail that I would encourage readers to go check out in the paper. Uh, But once you've started to incorporate all these dynamics into the model, can you talk about the range of outcomes that you find and whether there is sort of a most likely outcome uh, that emerges from the model? Yeah, so what what we do is we, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of uncertainties here. And so we we don't run the model just once and kind of look at the outcome. What We we run it 100,000 times, right? And what we do is we we kind of sample over the uncertainties in these parameters that that we put into the model. Uh, And then we we cluster, we we group those 100,000 outcomes into clusters of kind of similar trajectories of of policy and emissions. And what that's trying to do is trying to generate a kind of tractable number of scenarios that emerge from uh, the model, but that kind of represent different possibilities of what this, you know, uh, social, political, technical system uh, looks like. And if we look at what those um, scenarios look like, we, we see a range of temperatures in 2100 uh, of somewhere between uh, kind of about two degrees to about three degrees is where an awful lot of those um, emissions trajectories kind of come out. Um, And what, you know, certainly we we have a, a kind of central cluster of trajectories, right, which we call the modal path. Um, and that's about um, about half of our, our scenarios kind of fall into that, that bucket. Um, and that sees, you know, relatively uh, ambitious scaling up of climate policy, um, you know, over the next, say, two decades, um, that in turn leads to peaking of emissions by about sometime in the 2030s, and net zero by about 2080. And so that is not not a kind of Paris agreement kind of consistent target, but it is something that is very different from, say, you know, the baseline business as usual type emissions. Um, and it gets us to about uh, 2.3 degrees um, by 2100. That's really interesting. And um, it's it, it, I, I've been talking about this with some other people. Uh, it's so interesting to think about how these trajectories have changed over time because technologies have changed, because policies have changed, because public opinion has changed. Um, I know you didn't study this in the paper, but I'm curious, if you did the same analysis, let's say like 15 years ago, do you have a guess as to whether you would end up with a higher or lower trajectory in terms of the end state uh, temperature rise that you observe in 2100? Yeah, so I'm almost certain that um, uh, if we were to have done this 10, 15 years ago, you know, our our probability mass around those 2100 temperatures would be substantially higher. Um, and I think you've seen a scaling up of 
um, a change in public opinion um, is part of it, um, I, as well as a scaling up of, of carbon pricing. Um, just even in the last kind of few years about the number of countries that are doing it, the levels at which those carbon prices are, uh, the rate at which they're increasing. Um, and so the water kind of going into our model um, uh, kind of to inform this, this analysis. And I think that has really changed. Um, I would also say I, I kind of agree with your observation that it seems like we're starting to bound um, these 2100 temperatures at, at ranges that are, you know, starting to make these higher outcomes look um, quite unlikely. And ours is not the only paper to do that. And actually, one thing um, we're able to do is use a recent paper that came out that looked at um, these pledges countries have made. Um, so countries have now kind of stated what they're going to do uh, under the Paris Agreement um, for emissions in 2030. And a lot of countries have also said things about kind of their 2050 goals. Um, and if you look at, and then you have to make some some estimates about, you know, how likely those are or um, um, what exactly some of those pledges actually translate into in terms of emissions. Um, but if you if you look at what the 2030 and 2050 emissions look like, given those those stated policies, um, they're very similar to what we find in our modal, uh, our modal pathway. And that's quite surprising, given that none of that information kind of enters the model at all. And but we're, we're still kind of recovering something similar that seems to match um, these Paris Agreement commitments. Uh, and so I you know, it's not just this paper, but there, there are several other ways at which you could get at this problem that seem to suggest that we're on this kind of trajectory that's making something in the realm of like two to three degrees look pretty likely. Um, 1.5 degrees is increasingly out of reach if it wasn't already out of reach um, several years ago, but two degrees is certainly still possible if that ambition um, kind of ramps up uh, more aggressively than kind of is currently stated, uh, or if or if mitigation technologies, if the the advancements are a kind of easier and faster than maybe people anticipate. Yeah, that's great. All great comments, and um, they absolutely dovetail with work that I'm doing right now as part of our annual Global Energy Outlook report, where we basically look at all sorts of different long term energy projections, and and we're certainly finding something similar to what you've just described there. So stepping back a moment and, and going back to this question about modeling, um, you know, as listeners are probably intuiting, you know, developing models like this uh, is hard. It's complex. Um, and even when it's informed by the best available research, there are still lots of uncertainties, which, which you've already uh, talked about. Um, but I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about those uncertainties and where you think some of the biggest ones are and what the implications of those larger uncertainties are for the results that we've just been talking about. Yeah, so uh, this is definitely a, you know, a key question here, right? You can kind of come up with the greatest model in the world, but then if you don't have any data to kind of inform it, to inform what the parameters are, to constrain it, then, you know, it, it's not necessarily kind of particularly reliable. And so we address this in the paper um, in, you know, one way that we do attempt to bound some of these parameters. And there is a mix of approaches there. Some of them have you know, fairly well established estimates in the literature, like there's been a lot of work on this learning by doing effect and just, you know, looking at historical evidence of like how quickly um, kind of costs come down over time with installed capacity. And so we rely on, uh, for some parameters, we're able to rely on that. 
Um, in other cases, particularly for these um, parameters related to the social system, uh, we have parameters related to people's um, observation of climate change. Uh, and there, there really is like no data there. And so what we try and do, we run the model historically, and then we, we kind of try and match model output to observations of what um, changes in public opinion have looked like over time um, and what changes in policy have looked like. Um, and and so we're kind of doing this, this probabilistic uh, joint constraint on some of the parameters in order to try and get the model to like match those historical observations as best we can. Um, and that is definitely limited by the fact that those ob historical observations are partial. They're only for uh, a subset of countries. Um, and so what we, you know, it'd be really nice to have much more data on um, from many more countries about changes in public opinion, about changes in policy, about changes in behavior, about changes in um, observation of climate change and recognition of it. Um, but that that just doesn't exist. And so, you know, we, we do with this kind of partial calibration of the model. And then the other way we deal with this is basically trying to, uh, you know, recognize that uncertainty and incorporate it into our results and this is where we you know this is this is why we do these kind of a hundred thousand runs of the model is to try and um fully kind of sample that that parameter space of uncertainty um and so when we do that we can we can identify given the variance in our in our emissions and our policy trajectory we can kind of pull out the parameters that seem really important um, in driving um, that variation. Um, and so, you know, these are parameters that, that are maybe not kind of particularly surprising. Um, so they tend to be um, parameters related to these, a lot, a lot to do with these feedbacks, particularly um, either in the social system or the political system. So this political response is really important. And so if you have a lot of uh, we call it like status quo bias, which is an idea from political science that kind of institutions tend to have certain inertia associated with them. And so they might respond uh, only slowly to changes in public opinion that could wrap into it a lot of ideas around political economy um, and things like that. And so that tends to be quite important. Um, there tends to be uh, this question of how quickly do opinions um, diffuse through the population is quite important, um, as well as parameters related to uh, improvements in the energy sector and just how effective is this mitigation technology? Uh, how quickly will it improve over time? Um, that's going to be really important in determining emissions. And finally, there's another set of important parameters that come through what we call the cognition component, which is related to people's direct perception of climate change through their experience of weather. And so this is an idea that's definitely out there and there's a lot of papers kind of asking this question of like, you know, do people's like beliefs about climate change or opinions on climate policy like relate to the weather they're experiencing? Um, and it seems like that, you know, papers tend to find some association there, but there's also a lot of evidence that people's perception of climate change is imperfect um, because of certain cognitive biases um, and because of kind of limited memory. Uh, and so if you allow for the question of just how large those cognitive biases are is another kind of important set of uncertain parameters. Yeah, that's so interesting. Is that kind of similar to the status quo bias in, in which we sort of come to perceive that whatever we're experiencing currently is kind of like normal <laughs> as opposed to maybe abnormal? 
Yeah, so we we um we have two uh, distinct biases that we 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 look at in the model. Um, one is it's actually something that I've done work on before using Twitter data, which is this question of shifting baselines. Um, and and so this is kind of like the status quo bias, right? Where the idea is. Well, maybe you perceive anomalies, but you perceive anomalies relative to some shifting idea of normal. Uh, and that idea of normal changes over time. And, you know, we found evidence using the Twitter data, and this is incorporated into this model, um, that that happens on about a five-year time frame. And so that's relatively fast compared to the speed of climate change. Um, and so it suggests that people um, are going to really, like, not perceive um, the true um, kind of degree of climate change. The other really interesting cognitive bias we have in there is this um, uh, what, what we call a biased assimilation effect. Um, and this is the idea that your political uh, um, opinions affect how you perceive the weather, right? And so um, you're kind of primed because, say, you support climate policy, um, and that then primes you to notice warm anomalies more than cold anomalies. Uh, and the opposite, so if you oppose climate, uh, uh, climate policy, maybe you notice uh, those cold anomalies more than those warm anomalies. And the combination of those two, uh, two cognitive limitations, those two cognitive biases, is actually very powerful. Um, and the combination of them can really sustain, um, even if, you know, even if you think that perception of climate change affects opinion on climate change, which even that itself is not necessarily well established but even if you think that's true the combination of those two cognitive biases can can really like um uh, diminish that effect and lead to kind of sustained opposition to climate policy yeah absolutely i i'm reminded of the time that uh jim inhoff the oklahoma senator brought a snowball into the the capitol on a day it was snowy outside to talk about uh climate change well friend more again from uc davis this has been so interesting i really encourage people to go check out the paper which again we have a link to in the show notes and let's close out our discussion with the same question that we ask all of our guests which is to recommend something that you've watched or read or heard it can be related to the environment or even just loosely related to the environment uh that you'd recommend to our listeners so what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack well, I might. So I went on a mini uh, binge on reading kind of um, some philosophy of science type books. And this was also kind of uh, began maybe during the pandemic and watching this uh, interaction of science and policy and society um, in ways that are very, I think, for people that work on climate change, you know, this, this was not unfamiliar kind of uh, what you saw happen with, with epidemiology as we, you know, kind of went through the the. the the COVID pandemic. Um, and so I got interested in these, um, this set of uh, books that, you know, maybe if you could think of them as this kind of uh, post postmodern approach to science, right, where we, we kind of recognize that the way science is done, the way knowledge is created is there is a, a social and, and um, uh, setting to the way in which that happens that is embedded in, in a kind of particular political, social, economic environment. And yet, right, we still think there's something real there, right? You know, there's, there's something valuable to science. And like, what is it that we can point to um, about um, the scientific method, the scientific process, such that even though it, it's done by people, it's done in institutions, right? So, you know, in that sense, it, it's kind of contingent on, you know, the, the, a particular social setting. And yet it's still probably saying something valuable, right? 
And so there are two books that I would definitely recommend for anyone interested in those questions. And so one is this, this book, Why Trust Science um, by Naomi Reskes. Um, and so she, she writes, you know, fascinating books. Many of your listeners might, might um, know her from her work on Merchants of Doubt, um, kind of showing this, this kind of climate denial industry. And so this is a book based on a series of lectures um, she gave, kind of really teasing out, you know, what is it about science that... Um, leads us to trust it and when when should we not right so what are some of these um, blind spots or weaknesses um, where the scientific process is kind of you know understating uncertainty or overstating confidence um, and that we should and think as scientists it's really valuable um, to, to read that and you know Naomi Reskes is, is really interesting because she has a science PhD as well as a kind of history uh, um, kind of PhD and so you know it's kind of written by someone that, that you know is very familiar with that the scientific process. And then the second one is this this book, The Knowledge Machine um, by Michael Strevens, which is a longer term history of science, but it's also kind of pulling out these, these questions of like, what is what is it about science and the scientific process um, that, that leads us to, to have confidence in it um, under certain conditions? And so both of those I would definitely recommend. It's highly readable. Um, and oh, and the, I mean, I think it's also, I know many of your listeners are economists and kind of thinking about, you know, economics is becoming more scientific um, in many ways, right? And kind of the way questions are asked, the, the importance of empirical research, um, the way funding is, is applied, you know, all these things are kind of, you know, making economics kind of, it's, it's in this kind of transition phase, I think, at the moment between, um, you know, um, it's starting to look a lot more like the natural sciences, I think. That's from my observation of someone kind of sitting at the intersection of the two. Um, and so I think a lot of these would be, would be kind of recognizable to people working in economics today, too. Yeah, that's really interesting and, and great recommendation. So we'll have links to those in the show notes uh, for people to check out. And one more time, Fran Moore, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.